This podcast is brought to you by Eisner Award-winning Legend Comics and Coffee in Omaha, Nebraska, and supporting listeners like you. Go to TwoHeadedNerd.com and click donate, or visit Patreon.com backslash TwoHeadedNerd to become a supporter today. Ha-cha! Our story this week picks up where we left off last week. Broadcasting from the Ziggurat at Omaha, deep below the metro area, it is our pleasure to welcome you to episode 491, we're almost there, Joe, of the Two-Headed Nerd Comic Book Podcast. My name is Matt Long. And I'm the internet's Joe Patrick. Together, Matt and I are cursed to share a body after replacing the ancient guardian of the temple we discovered in the caverns deep underneath our fair city. Our penance for trespassing is to review the week's new comics and share our editorial opinions on all things nerd. On this week's 4th of July Bonanza episode, Joe and I are going to share an all-American review of the Century number one and Shadow Roads number one. After that, we'll review eight comics so fast, it's not going to make America great again, but it will make it a little less terrible. During the ludicrous speed round, then we'll pay a visit to the THN Sanctum Sanctorum, where the ghosts of our forefathers will help us make our must-read picks for next week. And finally... Luke Cage returned to Netflix this week, so it's time for another edition of Nerd TV. But before we start mutilating our fingers and G.I. Joe collection with this says Guardian Firework Hall, we better talk about this week's Nerd News. Nerd News. <laughs> it was barely a whisper. I was really loud. <laughs> From the Viltramite desk, Robert Kirkman, Corey Walker, and Ryan Otley's Invincible will be adapted to an animated series by Amazon as part of Kirkman's overall development deal with the online retailer and media conglomerate. I am so happy about this. Yeah, this news comes from Deadline. Teen Titans' Simon Rakopia will serve as Invincible's showrunner. Kirkman himself will act as one of the show's executive producers, of course. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Quotes about how great Amazon is. Yada, yada, yada. Robert Kirkman is such an uncanny talent. A film adaptation of Invincible was on the books by Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg. And it was announced uh, back in April of 2017. But uh, nobody knows whether or not both projects are getting developed or if they shit can that movie. <laughs> I hope not. And here's why. It's not because that I don't think Seth Rogen has done a good job with Preacher. He's done a perfectly fine job. And people really like that show. It is not the Preacher adaptation that I necessarily wanted. And I don't want to see them going out on a different take on Invincible. For some reason, when you do it animated, I am perfectly fine with panel for panel recreation oh, of yeah. the comic to cartoon. Doesn't bother me at all. Please. Give me that. I don't want to see Seth Rogen's take on Invincible. You know what I mean? I agree. People liked Preacher, and I enjoyed what I did watch of it, but I don't know how you do a book like Invincible as a live action. Well, there's also no reason to do it. I think we get so obsessed with comic book adaptations, movies and TV-wise, that we forget that this first was drawn. Why not make it a kick-ass cartoon? You know, if you look at, I mean, the state of anime in Japan, all those comics are, are adapted word for word from the anime to the screen, and they do a wonderful job, and it is a huge market. And I love some of it. You love some of it. People all over the world love it. Why is there no serious American animation push? I don't get it. Well, I think there's a there's a... There's a part of me, and I'm sure there's a part of uh, like this in many fans that thinks, oh, yeah, uh, it's a cartoon. You know, it doesn't really count in air quotes. Right. Like, and, and this is coming from someone that fucking loves cartoons. Yeah, totally. I mean, like, it's just think like. Think about the Justice League cartoon that we loved so much and the Batman animated series. You know, right, just, right. Why can't we take cartoons seriously in this country? I yeah, don't we understand. just don't. We don't hold them up along. We don't hold them up alongside the the live action films as yeah. equals. It's ridiculous. Even though many of the cartoons that have come out are superior to some of these piece of shit films. Oh, absolutely. But yeah, I totally agree. I, I think that this would is going to make a fantastic cartoon, and on Amazon they can do whatever the hell they want. Make it, you know, totally mature audience. Like I want sure. buckets of blood. Yeah, it should be crazy fun. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm totally excited. 
Moving over to the Starfleet desk. According to Variety, four new Star Trek series are actively in development at the network. Presumably is programming for CBS All Access. Good, because we want to make sure it stays hidden from as many people as possible. <laughs> That's the streaming-only service that premiered Star Trek Discovery in late 2017. Alex Kurtzman, whose credentials include Star Trek Kelvinverse films. Those are the that reboot. Is. That's the reboot. Oh, gotcha. Several Transformers movies and all the recent Dark Universe reboot of The Mummy is supervising all of the shows in development as well as taking over showrunner duties on Discovery Season 2. Boy, his Here's resume it. is a real mixed bag. <laughs> yeah. Well, he doesn't have to worry about the Dark Universe reboot because it's not happening because yep. The Mummy tanked. Yep. And from what I understand, Transformers is in flux too, and they're trying to decide what happens next with it. So I heard that they're going to reboot it. That's what I heard as well. Here are the four rumored Trek shows coming. You got Starfleet Academy, an idea that's floated around ever since Enterprise went off the air. The show will come from Stephanie Savage and Josh Schwartz, the creators of Gossip Girl, which, perfect, right? The CW's Dynasty reboot and Hulu and Marvel's Runaways series. Man, they were like, they had two strikes and then they pulled it out. I guess. <laughs> A limited series that Variety says is based around the Wrath of Khan story. More likely is a show centering on Khan Noonien Singh, portrayed by Ricardo Montalban in the Star Trek TOS Space Seed episode. And again, in my favorite Star Trek movie, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. All signs point to this series taking place during the eugenics war. Rumor has it that the Wrath of Khan director Nicholas Meyer is involved with this project, Ooh. which he seemed to confirm in May 2018. If that is true, Ooh. oh my God, I would Fun. be excited. Yeah, dude. Another animated series, the first Star Trek cartoon since the original in 1974. I love the old school Star Trek animated series. Yeah, it's fun. The whole thing. They, had like, a cat, they had like a cat lady. Yeah, it's fucking nuts. A guy with four arms. And here's the, the big report. This is the big money. And Kurtzman and Discovery season one writer Akiva Goldsman oh, are reportedly yeah. in the works on a series that could bring back Patrick Stewart to the iconic role of Jean-Luc Picard. Make it so! Please. So if they're bringing back Jean-Luc Picard, which is my fondest desire... <laughs> It's got to be a, a following next gen, following the next gen movies. I guess, right? I mean, he's old, he an old man now. Right. All of this sounds so cool, and I'm excited that they are excited for this new Star Trek push because Discovery was wonderful. I fucking cannot stand that it is on the CBS all-access pay window bullshit. Yeah. Like, you can't do all of these there. You can't. You are destined to fail. Just get, a v- just get a VPN. <laughs> just get a VPN and set your computer to Canada and watch it on Netflix. Seriously. I mean, like, I mean, it's great that it's doing really well around the rest of the world, but is this going to become the Star Trek network? Like, what are you guys doing? You I know. can't I mean, do it all there. <laughs> so apparently Discovery led to a huge explosion of signups. I need some Star Trek on regular TV. That's all there is to it. But yeah, so we can get it in front of everybody, not just, you know, the hardcore nerds. Let's get it in front of everyone and see how it does. But yeah, um, I don't care if anything else happens other than this Captain Picard return, because I want more stories in the next generation timeline so bad. Yeah, that sounds amazing. I want to see the return of Deep Space Nine. I mean, please give it to me. Totally. Avery Brooks isn't doing shit. Jordy LaForge is still out there. He looks great. <laughs> Michael Dorn would like nothing more than to come back and do like a Captain Wharf. Yeah. I mean, we're going to cut into his golf schedule, but that's about yeah, it. I don't yeah. think he's doing anything else. Please. Speaking of returns, Square Jawed Justice is returning to comics. One of the most iconic comic strip heroes of all time is back in action, courtesy of a new series from IDW, Dick Tracy, Dead or Alive. This series reimagines Dick Tracy for the 21st century through a retro lens by the creative team of Mike Allred, Lee Allred, Rich Tommaso, and Laura Allred. In case you don't know who those names are, Mike Allred created Madman. Lee Allred is his brother, co-writes with him occasionally. Laura is a brilliant colorist that colors all of his work. And Rich Tommaso does books like Spy Seal for Image. Yeah. 
Which was great. Uh, and uh, uh, Dark Corridor. It, like He does fantastic detective noir type retro stories. Totally. Mike and Laura were mostly were just recently working together on Silver Surfer. Yep. Which was so wonderful. Yep. It was so great. In Dick Tracy, Dead or Alive, the all-American detective just made the biggest collar of his career and it only cost him his job. Now the honest cop has packed his bags for the city by the lake. And its criminal community is firmly in his sights. Uh, Mike Allred's going to do the covers. It'll be co-written by Mike and Lee. uh, Drawn by Tommaso. Colored by Laura. I can't wait. I love Dick Tracy. I hate to say this. I don't give a shit about Dick Tracy. Oh, man, I love it. I've never cared. I respect the character and his place in history. It's just... I just never gave a shit. This is the only way that you're going to make me give a shit yeah. by putting some of my favorite creators out there on this. I think this is going to be so damn cool, and I cannot wait. Like, he's got a rogues gallery to rival Batman or The Flash. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Like totally ridiculous. prune face and flat top. I, yeah. I love all that goofy crap, the yellow raincoat. I guess it's a trench coat. <laughs> it looks like a raincoat. It's bright yellow. <laughs> but yeah, I'm, I'm pumped for this. I love the character. I loved the strip. It's this is good news for me. This creative team is killer. Here we go again. Come on, Junior. So there's your nerd news and analysis for this week. Be sure to head over to the THN forums and let us know what you think about these stories and everything we missed. You can find the forums by heading to twitternerd.com and clicking on the forums button. It's review time in the ziggurat where Joe and I take M80s, light them, put it right in the middle of some of your favorite comics, and then run away and blow them to hell! Joe, what are you reviewing this week? My review this week is of Shadow Roads number one from Oni Press. It's written by Cullen Bunn and Brian Hurt, with art by A.C. Zamudio, and colors by Carlos N. Zamudio. No relation, I'm sure. I Yeah, I doubt it. Yeah. It's designed by Keith Wood. I'm not sure what that means, but there's no letterer credited, so maybe that's it. It's 32 pages for $3.99. Here's probably your over, the overall design of the book, because this like, book was very, like from front to back, was very well designed. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, he didn't design like the panel layouts or anything. But no, no, no. I just mean like, like the, the recap and, like, page and the cover yeah. stuff. Yeah. yeah. The world is thinnest at the crossroads a mythical plane that serves as a doorway throughout the universe. It is here that a band of adventurers throughout the Wild West gather, brought together by Gord Cantrell and Abigail Redmayne with a singular purpose, to fight back against the creatures that would endanger the sanctity of all creation. Shadow Roads takes place in the aftermath of Cullen Bunn and Brian Hurt's acclaimed series The Sixth Gun, a series that I sadly fell behind on and was never able to catch up. Because you're a bad comic book nerd. I know. That's all it comes down to. I know. Thankfully, Bun and Hurt don't punish the reader for missing parts of the story. In fact, there's plenty to enjoy here, even if you've never read The Sixth Gun at all, at least so far. As with The Sixth Gun, Bun and Hurt bring together an ensemble cast of disparate characters from all walks of life. There's Henry Gray, a Native American academic transplanted to London, his enthusiastic but cowardly friend Barry, Isabella O'Dooley, a pistolera, known as the wildflower of the Mexico, Chesapeake Smith, a mysterious of traveler. the Mexico. Time out. A wildflower of the Mexico. That's what it said. Okay, I double checked right. it. Fair. Chesapeake Smith, a mysterious traveler that rides with ghosts, plus Abigail and her companion Calfu who bears a striking resemblance to the Sixth Gun's Gord Cantrell. In fact, I, have a, I had to double-check that they didn't call him Gord, even though they said Gord in the solicit, so I don't know what's up with that. After a vicious battle through the demon-infested crossroads, Henry finds himself somehow transported back home to the American West. The writers do a great job giving readers a strong sense of each character's personality spread over the course of the 30 pages or so. The characters don't all meet here, but you know that their paths are going to bring them together sooner or later. I was disappointed at first that Hurt wasn't drawing the series, but 
He's busy on his other creator-owned book with Bun, uh, The Damned, which is very good. And I really enjoyed the artwork by AC and Carlos Zamudio. The line work kind of reminded me of the angular style of Declan Shalvey, but also it features wildly varied and exaggerated facial expressions and character designs. And the soft red color palette helps connect this book to the world of the sixth gun. Shadow Roads number one was a great start to what I hope will be another long run supernatural western from Bun, Hurt, and Company. If you've never read The Sixth Gun, don't sweat it. If you're a longtime fan, this is going to be right up your alley. I'm giving it a buy it. I wanted to love this more than I did. I'll be honest. What's your goddamn problem? I'm not bitching about it. I'm not, I'm not going to say it's bad because it's not. And I'm giving it a buy it as well, but I can't sit here and honestly tell you that after I read this, I was excited as I was going into it. I loved The Sixth Gun so very, very much. And I think Brian Hurt's art was a huge part of that. And I don't have a problem with this guy's art. It's good. But it's not the same. And I guess I wanted more of the same. And going into it expecting more of the same, you might be a little let down. This is a very good comic book. I don't know if it's the best jumping on point, because there's so much stuff that I love that led me to here. You know what I mean? But you didn't need to know anything going you into don't. this book. It's a I'll perfect jumping on point. I'll give you that. I, maybe I'm just more worried that people aren't going to get it. You know what I mean? Because they don't know everything that came before. And I, I'm not coming into this blank slate, so I can't experience it from a blank slate. I'm giving it a buy it, but I cannot sit here and tell you that I loved it as much as I love the sex gun. Okay, that's fair, but it's also the first issue. Yes. And, and you are assuming uh, you are assuming things about the story that have not happened. Like this you're assuming true. that there's going to be like a steep learning curve and that is I, not an evidence. I cannot help but bring this baggage to it because I love the six gun so much. I'm admitting that. That's your I problem. I can't help it. That is my problem. Speaking of problems, hoof. Who man, do we have problems? <laughs> I, I chose The Century, number one, to review. This is from Marvel. It's written by Jeff Lemire with art by Aaron Kim Jacinto, who is sometimes just referred to as Kim Jacinto. Not sure why. 32 pages for $3.99. Here is your solicit. The Golden Guardian is back, fresh from the pages of Doctor Strange! But is it really such a good thing? Question mark. Mm, the greatest hero that the Marvel Universe ever forgot has returned. The Century, shining, sentinel, with the power of a thousand exploding suns, is back from the dead. But his troubled mind is far from finding peace. By day, he trudges through a mundane life as Bob Reynolds. At night, the Century soars across a gleaming perfect skyline. But how much of the Century's dual existence is real? And what of his dark other self? The Void. So... For those of you just tuning in, there have been several characters calling themselves a Sentry in the Marvel U, but the version we're dealing with here, a.k.a. Robert Reynolds, was created by Paul Jenkins and Jay Lee back in 2000 and falsely billed as Stan Lee's lost creation. It was a whole thing. And it was so lost. It was a marketing ploy. Yes. It, it was so lost that the Marvel U had to forget about him because of his nemesis and alter ego, the Void. Yeah. They were the same guy. It was a whole thing. I want you to name one other character in the Marvel Universe that's named the Sentry. You know what? I checked Wikipedia and there was four. Really? Yeah. And I like I, I didn't know any of them. I'm just going off of what Wikipedia said and trying to sound smart. That's all I'm doing. The first Sentry mini was a hit. And Marvel, who to this day is always ready to beat a dead horse all the way to hell, printed Sentry shit until readers never wanted to see the character again. Flash forward to today, and Jeff Lemire has a century story to return the century to greatness. Dot, dot, dot. Maybe. Here, the century is washed up, in hiding, and using a machine or magic thing that Doctor Strange gave him that allows him to go into a whole different world and fight the void alongside the whole century family, which includes two kids, a boy and a girl, and a crime-fighting corgi. As long as the Sentry makes it to his magic make-believe machine every 24 hours, he can keep the Void at bay, and obladee, oblada, life goes on. But what happens when Doctor Strange's doohickey gets stolen? Lemire's story is certainly the most interesting thing to happen to the Sentry for quite some time. 
But Jacinto's art is the real star here. He's got a great style that reminds me of Max Fiamura's strange, elongated character style. Yeah. Along with colorist, or as he's listed here, color artist, Latida, Rain Burrito, the two create a beautiful book exploding with emotion and action. You heard me say it earlier. This is the most interesting thing that Marvel has done with the century since the first century miniseries, but I still found it a little hard to care. Don't get me wrong. I'm going to read more because I trust Lemire. I just find it very hard to give a shit about the century. I'm giving this book a skim it because Lemire might have a virtually impossible job here, making anyone care about the century, but he may have done it. I just need another issue or maybe two before I know for sure. Here's the thing. I thought that this comic book was very good. It was. But you can't deny that. I have no interest in the return of the century as a force in the Marvel Universe. That's where I'm at. I, I just don't care about this character. The century, and that's not Lemire's fault. That's, uh, that's no, certainly not the not. artist's fault. It's not. The Century worked best as a one-off miniseries. Yes. The whole thing where they pretended it was the long-lost creation of a forgotten Silver Age artist. That was, that was fun. was all brilliant marketing. That tied into the plot of the first mini about the character being forgotten. And that's where they should have left it forever. Definitely. They never should have brought him back for a second mini, and they definitely shouldn't have made him part of the friggin' Avengers. No. But, like, the Sentry was never meant to exist beyond that first story, and Marvel has struggled to make him viable ever since. This yes. is the closest they've come. I still don't care. This is a good comic book, though, and for that reason, I'm giving it a skim it. Fair enough. That's where I'm at as well. And it's The like art you is almost- phenomenal. The art really is phenomenal, but you almost can't read this without that baggage of why the hell are we doing the century again? Like if you've never read anything about the century up until now, you might like that's fine. You might really dig this. But like if you've been on this roller coaster of the century being uh, dragged through Bendis's entire run of the Avengers, enough is enough. The century as a as an ongoing presence in the Marvel Universe is a bad idea. So that's a double skim it for the Sentry number one and a double buy it for Shadow Roads number one. We'll post our written reviews over at TwoHeadedNerd.com so you nerds can tell us what you thought of these comics and just how wrong we were as usual. I want to know why you love the Sentry. Yeah, let's hear it. Defenders. There's gotta be, I know Boom. there's a Sentry apologist out there. I want someone to call in and defend the Sentry. We will put you on the show. Let's Pitch hear a it. Defender segment. Defending the Sentry, why he's good, why he's relevant, why he matters. And you know what? I'm taking the Paul Jenkins original mini off the table. I want you to defend everything that's happened since then. We all agree that one was good. Why does he? Do, why did he deserve to come back again and again? Exactly. Exactly. Every year, I like to go all out for the 4th of July and put on a huge and dangerously irresponsible fireworks show for the Moloids. While this year is no exception... It's going to be even more dangerous and irresponsible than usual. Rather than road tripping to Missouri, where the firework laws aren't as draconian as Nebraska, this year, I hopped onto the Rainbow Bridge and stopped at one of those Asgardian firework tents run by the dwarves. Needless to say, the assortment I came home with isn't just illegal in Nebraska. I'm betting there isn't a country on the planet that would allow this show. Joe Patrick, put on your fire suit if you're going to be a coward about it, and let's celebrate freedom. Well, we review eight more comics that came out today, goddammit, during the Ludicrous Speed Round. Ludicrous Speed! Go! Mike Hammer, number one, Titan slash Hardcase Crime. I don't really know much about Mickey Spillane's hard-boiled detective other than that my dad loved the Mike Hammer TV show starring Stacey Keach from the 80s. Okay, I loved it too. It was really good. (laughs) This was a fun, classic 1940s gumshoe story by Max Allen Collins, paired with some really dodgy art by Marcello Salaza and Marcio Frere. Sorry about that. I think it's Marcello and Marcio. Okay, sure. (laughs) Overly rendered coloring, heavily photo-referenced backgrounds, and terrible anatomy. Every character looks like they were referenced from a posed Dolls. Oh. And like the clothes hang off of them like doll clothes. God. 
I wish I could say that the story shines through, but the art is a deal breaker for me on this one. I'm giving Mike Hammer a leave it. Charlie's Angels, number one from Dynamite. Chew writer John Lehman takes a crack at the sassy 70s Angels, and it's a perfectly cute story that sees the Angels breaking up a gun deal. Unfortunately, it's cute at best and takes an almost Inspector Gadget-esque turn in the end that was a little hard to swallow. Joe Isma was also only cute on art here, but there just wasn't enough for me to get excited about. It's almost funny, it's almost exciting, and almost worth reading. I'm giving Charlie's Angels a skim it. Modern Fantasy, number one, from Dark Horse. Imagine being a level 12 ranger forced to leave the adventure behind for a mundane data entry job in an office building full of orcs, floating eyeballs, and other monsters. That's the hook behind Modern Fantasy, the D&D-inspired office comedy from writer Rafer Roberts and artist Kristen Gudsnuck. Again, I apologize. Had a lot of fun with the concept, but the story took a turn towards relationship and crime drama that I really wasn't expecting. Weird. Yeah. I mean, not like super serious, but still. Okay. I was expecting The Office with orcs, you know what I mean? Gotcha, gotcha. Modern fantasy, it's cute and it's fun, but I don't know that it really hooked me enough to come back for more. I'm giving it a skim it. Bedtime Games, number one from Dark Horse. Three friends on summer vacation stumble into a locked tunnel with a horrible secret. Writer Nick Keller does a solid job on the dialogue in this story that feels like Stranger Things meets Tales from the Crypt, I guess. I love Connor Nolan's arc here as he is channeling Richard Corbin. The story was a little clunky at points, but the monster is legit scary and the art is worth the cover price. I am giving this a buy it. Teen Titans special number one from DC. Adam Glass takes over writing duties for the Teen Titans starting with this one shot and he decides that the best direction for the Titans is a dark and gritty path that sees some of them become potential murderers. See, that's where I've always seen them going. The art by Robson Rocha is serviceable. It's, it's pretty good. But based on this and the old dad trying too hard to be cool preview of the next issue, like seriously, if you look in last week's DC Comics, there's a preview of Teen Titans number 30. And it's got the Kid Flash running around beating up Brother Blood's cultists. And he's got his phone out and he's saying like, Hashtag selfie. Hashtag Kid Flash life. Hashtag superhero business. Hashtag... Ha it yeah. reminded me of that scene from 30 Rock where Steve Buscemi shows up at the high school and he says, <laughs> How do you do, fellow teens? And he's got a backwards baseball cap on. Based on that garbage, I have no interest in this utterly joyless shift in status quo for the Teen Titans. I do not know how you get it this wrong. Adam Glass is a bad comic book writer. I'm sorry. It's a leave it. Vampirella Roses for the Dead, number one from Dynamite. Attention continuity wonks. Apparently this story takes place before Vampirella Volume 4, which might be important. I couldn't stop rolling my eyes, the ridiculous dialogue, to notice Vampy disguises herself in a miniskirt and carries a purse to throw off the white guy that rolls with multiple girls but doesn't seem to be a pimp or anything that she's stalking. But dig this! Dawn's daughter was sexually assaulted by the same guy, so she's after him too. Look, I am all for comics examining issues like this, but they need to be well-written, not just have a good message and Joseph Michael Lindsner art, which I'm sure somebody appreciates. I cannot give this a bigger leave it. It was just a failure. Leave it. Multiple Man, number one from Marvel. Jamie Madrox is back from the dead. Or is he? Matthew Rosenberg takes one of my favorite mutant characters back to the X-Mansion to get to the bottom of his unexpected return. The story is full of fun twists and turns. There's a ton of guest stars. And the art by Andy McDonald and Tamara Bonvillain is fantastic. I am really glad to have Multiple Man back. I just hope it sticks. I'm giving it a buy it. Robotech number 10 from Titan. Simon Furman, writer of some of the best Transformers comics ever written, takes over the reins from Brian Wood with this not new storyline that is not a good jumping on point, and I continue not to love Marco Torini's art, and I find it hard to care about the Americanized version of Robotech. This comic is fine, and it's executed fine, but fine is definitely not good, and only gets Robotech number 10 a skimmit. 
splort! That EHR ludicrous speed round and splort is the sound of the century tearing the void in half, as seen in this week's issue of the century, number one, submitted by me, because none of you jerks sent anything in. Come on, you guys. If you want to submit an onomatopoeia of the week, you can do so by splorting it in the direction of any of our social media or shooting us an email at twoheadednerd at gmail.com. After a fireworks show like that, it's time to retire to the THN Sanctum Sanctorum where Matt and I are using Ben Franklin's Ouija board to speak to the ghosts of America's forefathers who will then whisper to us the secrets of the 4th of July's new comics. Matt, what is your must-read pick for next Wednesday and why doesn't Alexander Hamilton look like Lin-Manuel Miranda in real life? Uh, I mean, I hate to tell you this, but that was fan fiction, basically. Like, hip-hop <sighs> fan fiction, so... Damn it, yeah. he's not rapping or anything. Yeah, that's just not how it works, Joey. My pick is Catwoman, number one, from DC. It's written and illustrated by Joel Jones, 32 pages for $3.99. Here is your solicit. The wedding night's barely over, but Catwoman's back on the streets, this time to expose a copycat who's pulling heists around Gotham City. As Selina cracks the whip on her former criminal cohorts, she's attracted unwanted attention from one of Gotham's most dangerous groups. The mob? No. Try the GCPD! Uh And, as if the Bat Bride didn't have enough problems, don't miss a debut of an all-new villain determined to make new trouble for all nine of Selina's lives. Don't miss the start of an all-new monthly series written and illustrated by Eisner Award nominee Joelle Jones. I am so happy for her. She's crazy, stupid, talented. Now she's going to be a full-on double threat in her own monthly book. Writing Catwoman, the early art looks absolutely gorgeous. Oh, God, yeah. This seems like a return to capable, sexy, I know who I am and what I'm doing, Catwoman. And that's what we need because for too long, they have just had no clue what to do with that character. Very excited. I am too. And, you you know, you might as well pick this in tandem with Batman number 50, which also comes out on the 4th of July. Right. And, in fact, I believe the cover to Catwoman number one has one of the old style word balloons where the character's talking. And she says, you better buy Batman 50 first. (laughs) Uh, That's great. (laughs) It's pretty cute. My pick for next week is, of course, Captain America number one from Marvel Comics written by Todd Nahisi Coates. Art by Lanil Francis Yu. It's 40 pages for $4.99, and here is your solicit. It is winter in America! For over 70 years, he has stood in stalwart defense of our country and its people. But in the aftermath of Hydra's takeover of the nation, Captain America is a figure of controversy, carrying a tarnished shield, and a new enemy is rising. Who are the power elite? And how do they intend to co-opt and corrupt the symbol that is Captain America? This book is stirring up a little bit of controversy. Uh, Right-wing bros are pretty upset about the very uh, obvious political allegories in the free comic book day preview special. Oh, but the best part of it is they're calling Coates a racist. (laughs) Yeah, boy. I mean, that takes some... Joe, how much longer must our white people suffer? That takes some mental gymnastics I'm not prepared to tackle. Things have been almost maybe a little bit sort of kind of, but not really rough for like, I don't know, a month now. <laughs> <laughs> I am super excited for Coates' take on Captain America. Linnell Yu is a great artist. I have seen and read our part of Captain America number one already. I just can't stop time jumping. And it's good, y'all. Yeah, I am excited. Extremely unstable right now. I think this is going to be fucking awesome. Coates has already proven that he can take a book like Black Panther with a completely fake world kingdom and, you know, government and make it must read real world excellent fiction stuff. I cannot wait to see what he does with Captain America. The THN trade of the week goes to the Poochie Town hardcover from Fanagraphics, written and illustrated by Matt's favorite, Jim Woodring. It's 100 pages for $19.99. It's an oversized hardcover. It's a nice, big graphic album. Here's your solicit. Beginning with Congress of the Animals and again in Fran, Jim Woodring's beloved anthropomorph, Frank, has been subjected to hundreds of unbelievable adventures and yet nothing could prepare him for the transdimensional depredations of Poochie Town, the latest and greatest installment in the ongoing saga. Utterly devoid of topicality, irony, or deliberate cynicism, 
The Frank stories are instead timeless cartoon sustenance, and Poochie Town is the most opulent offering yet. This is a major new book from one of Fantagraphics' most beloved authors. Yeah, I truly love Jim Woodring. His stuff is psychedelic, completely bizarre, sometimes heartbreaking, sometimes adorable, but his art is gorgeous, absolutely beautiful. This is one of those things where you just turn your head off and go. It's it's not even fantasy. It's almost more like dreaming. <laughs> I mean, yeah. It's so great. He's a you, phenomenal talent. He is so good, and he does not do enough, man. This guy, now, it's every 10 years or so, we get something. Now, this book is on stands this week, today even, oh. June 27th, so don't pass it up. Remember, kitties, new comic book day is just a week away. So get these comics added to your pull files right friggin' now. Because we want you to argue with us when you read them and say, what are these guys talking about? That was bullshit. <laughs> Luke Cage season two is streaming now on a Netflix near you. So that means... It must be time for another exciting edition of Nerd TV. Uh, that wasn't bad. That wasn't too bad. I mean, you know, I did my best. But Joe's right. We're back with another season of Luke Cage. All the swagger, all the badassitude, the bulletproof black man of Harlem is back. And in this new season, he's a full on local hero. Right. Following the events of season one and the Defenders, Luke Cage is now a public figure. He's being like tracked online. People make videos about him. The news follows him around. There's even like drug dealers that are selling a drug with his name. Yeah, they call it Luke Cage. It's it's, uh, because like even the drug dealers think he's a badass. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So Luke Cage stars Mike Coulter as Luke. um, Alfre Woodard as Mariah. Rosario Dawson is Claire Temple. And they're in full on romantic relationship. They're in love. Yeah. Theo Rossi is back. He, you may have uh, remember him from Sons of Anarchy. I really like that actor. And he's still shades here, but he is also in a full-on relationship with Mariah. Ooh. Oh, I, I guess we should say that we are going to be talking spoilers for the first three episodes. I don't think we need to go full spoilers. I think we can, we can review it just by talking about the feel of it and where the, what they're doing with it. I don't think we need to spoil anything yet because it's so new. I don't really think there's much to spoil in the first three episodes anyway. Uh, which is part of my, not criticism, but uh, my one thought f- from watching the first three yesterday um, is that it moves very slowly. Not in a bad way. It's not like slam bang, you know, barreling along. It's it's much more character focused. Like it's focused on the individual characters and their interactions and relationships. Right. Uh, and then it's like interspersed with these Moments where Luke goes and busts up a drug ring or somebody tries to kill him or whatever. I would also argue the first season ran like that. Like they're focusing, I think they're focusing on Luke Cage, of course, but the story is also about Harlem and it's about everything around him and his place in it, like his kingdom, if you will, almost. Well, and you know, for, for as much as Luke is the main character of the show, the supporting cast, specifically Mariah and Shades, uh, and also Bushmaster, who is the new villain this year, they have like full on dedicated storylines that really have nothing to do with Luke. You know, Luke is going to definitely like cross over because they're doing bad things, right? There's this very involved plot about Mariah trying to like legitimize herself in like the shadiest way possible. <laughs> yeah, or at least appear to be legitimate. Well, yeah, like she talks about wanting to get out of the game, right? And right. so uh, the way that she's going to get out of the game is by investing in this company that's going to blow up. The only reason she knows this is due to insider trading information. Sure. But the way she's going to get her investment money is by embezzling it from millionaires. But also in true Mariah form, she feels she's doing the best thing. She is being told this is how everybody does it. Don't feel like you're, you're a bad guy because white people have been doing this shit for years, you know, and she's playing their game still. Yeah. In her mind. She's still a very complex character. I very much like her. And I, I like I like that 
in this one, she is sort of embracing her evil side a little more. Like, Shades has full-on polluted her. At first, he was influencing her a little bit, but now he has got his claws now, into her. I mean, she was bad before. Like She in, was. In season one, she kills uh, Cottonmouth, yeah, her brother. She, she also didn't show up with full-on murder intent. It happened. It went down that way. But, I mean, she's de- I like she was definitely a criminal from a criminal family. Like, there sure. was no hiding that. She didn't, like, fall into it. No, but she also felt she was doing the right thing. And she felt she was doing it for the right reasons. And I feel like now she has been influenced by the people around her enough to full-on just accept it. This is how we do business. And, ultimately, we're doing it for the right reasons, even if it is disgusting. Like, I, as... M- as much as I thought it was a mistake for them to kill off Mahershala Ali's character in the first season, I really am enjoying what uh, Alfred Woodard is doing as Mariah this season. Yeah. I thought honestly it was very effective how they did that and sort of like turned the camera to the right a little bit and went, Nope. He was so good though. He was so fun to watch. He was great. And her, and her killing him. Whoa. Establishes her as a real fucking badass. Yeah. I love that trick. And they're carrying through with it more here. The music is here. It's still a, Fucking amazing soundtrack. So great. Luke Cage, all the swagger is there, but now he's letting it hang out a little bit because he's not hiding. He's not a refugee. He's sort of accepting. He's kind of conflicted about it, right? He he kind of likes the attention, but he also doesn't like the expectations that are put on him or the idea of like selling out. Yeah, there's also a lot of talk of this. Should, Should you get paid for this? Right. And pretty much everyone is saying, look, man, Yes, you're doing a job. You should get paid. They're they're really pushing this towards heroes for hire. Right. Big time. Yeah, for now, sure. And the thing that worries me about that is I fucking hate Iron Fist, man. Okay. I hate this Iron Fist. So quick aside about Iron Fist. I saw uh, uh, some tweets from the new uh, show. I don't know if it was the showrunner or somebody involved with the production of the next season of Iron Fist. And the guy said, basically, it's like, forget all the shit that you hated. <laughs> I'm here to tell you that this thing has taken a complete 180. Now, and I know that he's involved with the show and it's his right. job to pump and it up what and else, stuff. What else could they possibly say? Or, here comes you more know, of the same crap, but this time you're going to like it? Or you know? say I nothing, mean, right? Just don't right. come online and make promises yeah. you're not going to keep. They're going to have to sell it to me. That's all I'm yeah. saying. They're um, really going to sell it to me. The thing that I love most, I think, about the current season the few episodes that i've seen is that the relationships are so strong it's like oh it's another season so and so's shacking up with another broad or you know but like the relationship between luke and claire has built over the course of uh the luke cage season and uh the defenders and now this and shades I think it like genuinely is in love with Mariah. <laughs> I think so. He does things for her when she is wronged that would not happen if it, if it was a dude just like playing her. No, there's a, there's a definite relationship there. And I think it's really interesting. I, I think what I really like about Luke Cage in that same sense, what you're touching on is it's the opposite of daredevil where Matt Murdoch is trying to protect everyone around him and leads a very secret life as daredevil doing what he does. And you, he can't let people get close. Luke Cage is a dude in the neighborhood. Everybody knows him. His whole, like everything about him is built on relationships. Yeah. And I have a feeling that that is going to bite him in the ass in this season. We're going to see, not because he gets too famous or cocky or something like that, but because he is a new hero, and having these relationships is dangerous, and I think they're building towards that. And it would not surprise me, calling my shot, Night Nurse gets killed. Oh, I don't think so. But She does. I think she dies. Nerd bet. Okay, fine. Let's go. I'm saying she dies. Rosario Dawson's character does not die. Okay, this. there it is. No, I'm, because we've got another season of Daredevil coming. There's another season of Jessica Jones coming. Sure, I'm putting it on the board. I'm nah. saying she dies. Nah. Regardless. So um, far, I think we're off to a great start. And I think Luke Cage has been one of the strongest character-wise series that they've done. Like, I really like what they've done with Jessica Jones, but she is very damaged. She's working through things. Like, Luke Cage is just a badass, man. He's doing his thing, you know? And um, Yeah, I think in the hierarchy of, of the Netflix shows, um, my order is Jessica Jones, Luke Cage, Daredevil, 
Punisher, Defenders, Iron Fist. Maybe okay. Defenders is above Punisher. No, because it had no Iron Fist in way. it. No way. Yeah, yeah. Punisher was great, man. Um, but like, oh. I, I like Daredevil, but I think that Jessica Jones and Luke Cage are much, much stronger shows. They're just stronger character pieces, right. I think. And um, it, they're off to a great start here. They're not rehashing anything. They're not trying to play on anything. This feels very natural. It feels like what would happen to this character after the past two shows that he's been on. They're bringing back some characters that we remember from the first one. He's still finding his way. It's not like he's just perfectly established. I, so far, I, I'm three episodes in. I love it. And I like the speed that it's moving at. I like oh. that it's not breakneck. Uh, Daughters of the Dragon? Yeah. Are in this you, show? Like, this is not me. a spoiler. <laughs> it was in the commercial for Luke Cage. Yeah. Missy Knight is going to get that bionic arm. Oh, man. And I am oh, watching. Man. I have been watching these episodes just waiting. Yeah. I'm waiting. There's an amazing scene uh, with Misty and Colleen Wing in a in a dive bar where they beat up a bar full of dudes, and it is fantastic. <laughs> it's so good. Here's the thing that I think is going to be the... This is the big thing that I think is going to bite Luke in the ass. He's much more powerful now. Yeah. Because if you remember in season one, he went through the process a second time, and he's cocky about it. Yeah. Because he has discovered that the things that were hurting him last season are not hurting him anymore. Yeah. And they establish that instantly. He walks in in the very first scene in episode one, like on a group of drug dealers and stands there and he's like, all right, let's go. And they all turn and they're like, hey, man. And I love the one drug dealer goes, we got to make it look like we at least tried. (laughs) And they all shoot and he just stands there like, oh, man. Yeah. And so I think (laughs) we're going to get to we're going to get to a. Luke getting seriously hurt. He's going to run up against Bushmaster and it's not going to be good. <laughs> yeah. See, I think it's just the opposite. I think we're going to see that no matter how powerful he is, he cannot protect everyone around him he, with all his power. He's, and they're going to play on the weaknesses of the people that he loves. We'll see. It's all coming in this season of Luke Cage. It's up now. It's streaming. I think we're both giving it a solid watch it. We really enjoy For sure. This. Um, here's a, to wrap it up, here's a spoiler free review from Steven Kohler on the Facebook fan page. He didn't care for season one, except for the music. He thought it was kind of boring. That being said, he really enjoyed season two. Bushmaster was a thousand times better than Cottonmouth or Diamondback. Even the music was better. And episode 10 might be his favorite episode of a Marvel Netflix show outside of Daredevil season one. Crazy talk. Uh, all of that said, though, he didn't really love the ending. He's not sure they stuck the landing. Time will okay. tell. We're only three episodes in. Yeah, we'll get there. For now, we're giving Luke Cage a watch it. Get on Netflix or your um, gray market device and watch some uh, <laughs> Luke Cage. Let us know what you think. Let's head over to the forums. We've got a nerd TV section. We can talk TV, and we'd love to hear from you guys. Excelsior! Oh, <laughs> But before we get out of here, Joe Patrick, it is your job to ask these nerds a new question of the week. All right. The new question of the week again comes from Phil Lee via the THN forums. We talked to him for the first time today. He is a super nice dude. And it's so weird because I feel like we've known him for years. Yeah, I know. He's been a pretty constant presence. But yeah, it was great talking to him. It was bizarre. Here's the question. What short-lived comic series should have run longer? So when he says short-lived, he's saying 24 issues or less, two years or less, and not something that was specifically marketed as a limited series. Right. It was Uh, a series, like pound puppies. Yeah, right. Examples for him (laughs) would be um, uh, Journey into Mystery from Marvel Now or Men at War, which was that new 52 uh, war book. Or the Cowboys of Moo Mesa. The Cowboys, uh, the Defenders of Dinatron City. Yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Phil's votes go to Zero, which was a Christopher Priest book in the 90s, and Hero, which was the Dial H for Hero revamp in the early 2000s, written by Will Pfeiffer. Both of Wonderful those are books. excellent books. Wonderful books. Uh, he also sh- gives a shout out to Dan Slott's Thing series, which was only lasted eight issues before it got canned. It was so good. And Next Wave at Marvel. I love all those answers. There it is. Kick it around. Call us next Saturday at 1130 to 1230 Central Standard Time or 
Call us right now. Leave us a message. Send us an MP3. Twitter.gmail.com. And here's the important thing to consider about cover to cover. Sometimes the phone lines are clogged up. Oh, people, multiple people trying to call at once. You might not be able to get through. If you can't get through, leave a message. Yeah. I'm constantly checking the mail throughout the recording. If you leave a message, we'll play it on the show. Absolutely. I don't know why I couldn't say that. THN is a listener-supported podcast. We want to thank everyone that throws money at us because we know money's tight these days. And you could be spending it on comics, hard drugs, whatever. I get it. We want to thank everybody, though, that supports us on both PayPal and our Patreon. Without you nerds, we cannot afford our gray market devices that we watch Luke Cage and Star Trek on. So, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Before we go, our weekly shout-out goes to British writers Leah Moore and John Repion, who have been dealing with a string of brutal circumstances over the past few months. John recently lost his sister Dawn, and Leah just sustained a severe and degenerative brain injury Oh God! while attending a music festival. I had no idea this happened. What the hell happened to her? I don't know. Like, Jesus. I don't know if she fell or, or what, but, like, yeah, I... I saw a photo like she's had to have brain surgery. God. Yeah, it's she's messed up. Uh, word to both these guys. I love their work. I was just gushing about their most recent Sherlock Holmes miniseries. Yeah, a friend of their a friend of their family set up a fundraising page to help see them through the next few months of recovery. I'll put the link in the show notes if you want to show your support. It's to a British like GoFundMe style page so I don't know how that works with like American donate donors but I'll put the link think, in the notes anyway I think you just donate and it's fine it just converts uh, it, it says okay you're donating this American dollars that is this in pounds or whatever and yeah it's all good so yeah I mean these guys had a tough month and they need some help so yeah most definitely god that's terrible to hear I'm sorry about that uh, side shout out R.A.P. Big Man Vader. We lost one of my favorite childhood wrestlers. That guy was incredible. Died this week. Way too young. He was 62. And Vinny Paul. Vinny Paul, Pantera drummer, just died yesterday at the age of 53. Awful. Both huge losses. Hard living. Rest in power, gentlemen. Until next time, true believers, remember to pre-order your comics or your retailer just might put you in the ground. I'll tell you what, this is the Two-Headed Nerd. Signing.